I am Jennifer Zeman, your host of the Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network. Today, I'm joined by Erica Council. Erica is a charismatic food writer, recipe developer, and photographer based in Atlanta, whose work has been featured in publications like the New York Times and Savor. But it's her biscuits that have made her a fixture in the Southern culinary world. Hi, Erica. Thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Could you introduce yourself to listeners who might not know who you are? Sure. So I am Erica Council, sort of a mad biscuit baker around. I mean, I make other things too, but kind of became well known about the biscuits that I make. I was a software engineer first, but I kind of grew up in this business. Uh, My family runs a restaurant in North Carolina. Chapel Hill, North Carolina is probably the most famous one. It's Mama Dips. Uh, And then on my mom's side, which a lot of people don't know, uh, our family is related to Scott's Barbecue, which is Adam Scott of Goldsboro, North Carolina. So you call it, I just, there was never a, a place in my life growing up that I did not witness food, food service, service work, and just, you know, the whole, how the whole business works, especially when it comes to African-Americans. And now I'm here, I have my own sort of biscuit business where I do pop-ups around the city and then we deliver biscuits and cinnamon rolls and other goodies uh, around the city of Atlanta. And we also ship nationwide now, so. Yeah, and last time I talked to you, I just looked, was literally in June of last year. Yeah. <laughs> and you were just <laughs> launching it and getting it off. The, and, and so it's a, it's a year later. And it seems like, you know, Bomb Biscuits has just like really blown up. And like you said, you have cinnamon rolls, you do a lot of different things like gluten-free biscuits even. But it's really interesting to me just as someone who like consumes, you know, your food and food media to watch how you have, like you're building like this empire off of this <laughs> one food item. Um, why the biscuit? Why the biscuit? And can you just talk about your relationship to the biscuit and why it is important to you? Yeah, so... I guess, you know, I mean, I'm from the South. We all consume biscuits all the time. And I, and honestly, when I started sort of venturing into this food space years ago, I, you know, noticed that there is absolutely no representation when it came to African-Americans and baking. I mean, outside of cakes and pies, you know, but for me, uh, that's all, all I ever saw, whether it was sourdough bread to biscuits um, were black women. So, you know, when it came time to me to do sort of, I started doing these Sunday suppers and I always made biscuits. Like I've just always made them, you know, and people would come and eat dinner at my house you know, on Sundays. And then I had a friend suggest to me, you should branch out and let, you know, invite just random people come and eat. This food is good. And, you know, I was like, no, uh, <laughs> but I did. Um, I did. Which is funny. Uh, the Garner girls, they used to sell uh, pickles. I think they still do. I'm not sure, but they had a space. Um, not too far from, it's like the Ellsworth industrial area. Um, it looks different now. It's across from Top Golf, which wasn't there okay. when I started doing it. <laughs> and so I started, weird. Every time I see that still, I'm like, what? Yeah, it's just like <laughs> in the middle of nowhere. Like, wow. So yeah, I, I started doing Sunday supper pop-ups there. And like I had, you know, people come and help, but it was mainly just, you know, sort of a soul, soul food, as they like to call it, sort of dinner. And I always had biscuits. And then at one particular dinner, I had I had someone mention to me, you know, you should you should sell these biscuits. You should. Uh, so I mean, I sold them sort of from a private aspect and wasn't really like mass producing to sell to everybody. And I ran into Brian Furman um, of Bees Crackling Barbecue, and he had like it was actually my apple butter, and he was like, you know, uh, you should come and sell your biscuits. You can come and do it at my restaurant, barbecue place. And, you know, I started doing pop-ups at his place and with the fried chicken and all that. And then from there, I started doing like corporate catering. So like breakfast to corporations that I already had contacts with because I work in corporate America. (laughs) That's right. You're a software software engineer on the side. (laughs) Yeah. So I started getting big contracts with Salesforce and uh, KPMG just to come and do their breakfast, you know, for teams and stuff. And you know, when the pandemic hit, it kind of stopped all of that. And I had one of the corporate clients we cater for, one of their sort of assistants or whatever had reached out to me and was like, "Do you, would you consider bringing, taking some biscuits to my boss? <laughs> uh, and so I did. And, you know, from there, it just sort of grew into, well, let's just do some p- private sort of delivering around the city to some already existing clients we had. 
And then my husband was, you know, just mentioned to me, I don't know if it was my husband or my daughter, um, they're like, you, you should just open this up and see if other people want to do this in Atlanta. I mean, if you're willing to get in your car and deliver it. And that was all she wrote, I think. <laughs> yeah, so, I, <laughs> so where, so where, where is the business today? Like, what is this, like, how big is it? What is your reach? What's your delivery area? Is it like, is it much larger than when we spoke last June? Yes. I mean, mainly because I'm delivering, I ship uh, nationwide, which is a whole nother beast. But <laughs> I just kind of got so many, you know, inquiries about that. And it was like, okay, let's, let's try it. It's a process that there. Uh, so we, we've done a lot of, I mean, we've shipped to Alaska, uh, Hawaii, probably the farthest we've shipped, um, but I don't go outside of, it's just nationwide. And right. in the city, we try to stay inside the perimeter, um, but that gives a little fuzzy for people. So if you email, <laughs> the, if you email, um, I have some great people that work with me and, you know, they'll say, okay, you know, if we're, if we're here, then we keep going all national. I mean, you know, it's, <laughs> so we're not completely opposed to. Mm-hmm. Last week we delivered something to Alpharetta, but we do charge a little bit more. So if you try to order it through the site, it'll say, oh, we don't go out that way. But most people just will send an email like, well, I want to order it anyway. So um, we're and, just and inside the-, the perimeter for local deliveries. And what is the product line today? Like, what do you offer both locally and nationwide? Is it different? Uh, nationwide, yeah, it's different. So we do the basic um, reheat and eat biscuits nationwide mm-hmm. and cinnamon rolls. Uh, just the plain cinnamon rolls. It's like a kit, so you can kind of warm it up and then ice them as you please. But locally, you get a lot of the sort of the flair that we, like the bacon cheddar biscuit is, I've sold hundreds of those. Like people love those biscuits, which, you know, everything better than bacon with bacon, cinnamon and sugar. Like this week we have banana pudding cinnamon rolls that we've almost all sold out last time I checked. But yeah, we, uh, you know, it, for local delivery, it's kind of what we're baking up. Um, I work out of prep Atlanta right now until we move into a permanent space. So it's kind of like whatever we're, baking up in the kitchen and you know we deliver it on Fridays because I, I have corporate clients that I do throughout the week um, mm-hmm. we do catering and things like that and so we get several of those orders every week we have one that's you know people who want breakfast sent to especially now that people are going back into the office that's really picked up a lot so you know they kind of can pick and choose what they want and so we'll offer if we are making something special for that, we'll offer that too. The only thing that we don't do that we get the most requests for are sandwiches delivery, uh, <laughs> like on Fridays. I mean, we do it for corporate clients because it's a big difference, but just delivering two fried chicken biscuits is like, oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, so is this still like a side thing or is it your full-time thing now? Like, do you, are you still doing software engineering? Um, and the engineering is uh, a side gig now. So they kind of switched probably because I can just not ever let that one go. But yeah, it's biscuits and, and all that have completely taken over my life. <laughs> so it's, <full, laughs> it's more than full time. It's every day, all day long. <laughs> and, you know, we talked about the biscuit, but I just remember the story that you told me about your grandma when she was at Columbia. And I just, I loved that story. Could you tell listeners about, you know, her biscuit story and how biscuits just became a thing in your family on both sides? Yeah. Well, I'll start with the easier story. My grandma did, of course, had made hundreds of thousands, God rest her soul, biscuits in her life. Um, she opened Mama Dips back in the 70s and it's still open now. Um, and you get a basket of biscuits and cornbread. It's just always been her thing and all my aunts. My Aunt Lane, my Aunt Nisi, my Aunt Spring, they all make phenomenal biscuits and other things. So it's just not, like I said, that's just something I always saw there. And as far as my, my grandmother, Geraldine Dort, she was more of an educator who cooked, uh, you know, sort of your cozy Southern grandma who could cook anything, honestly. But, you know, she, first and foremost, she was an educator and she was, you know, a very strong believer in black liberation from a, I like, I like to call her the MLK junior era, this sort of peaceful black liberation. Whereas my mom, who was very much a radicalist, you know, <laughs> so growing up, I got 
my grandma, who was part of the civil rights movement, very peaceful. We're going to do it this way versus my mom who was like burning it all down to the ground. So it, it's, <laughs> it was such a great, you know, just to have both of those people. And it's just, you know, to get not to get off on a tangent, but it's, it's very common when you when you have a child that was raised um, during that time and saw, you know, all of this sort of oppression for them to easily turn to radicalization like no we're not going to do it like that you know so anyway but my my grandmother she was an educator and so she um took advantage of this program that they offer to african americans in north carolina to get advanced degrees in education um for at columbia university Um, but the funny thing is historically they were doing that to say hoping or thinking that you know african americans wouldn't get the resources or the ability to take advantage of it. So they kind of put it out there because it was a big uproar of these, you know, very highly educated African-Americans who wanted to get advanced degrees outside of the HBCU or the historically black colleges and and take that back and, you know, build something on top of that. But um, it ended up being like 500 uh, African-Americans taking part in this program. I think it might have been, I could be wrong with that number, but my grandmother was one of them. And so she went to Columbia University and got a master's degree. But while she was there, she just, you know, it was a brief story, but she mentioned to me once when we were eating biscuits. She was like, you know, one time I was in, you know, when I went to Columbia, it was just such a different experience being there coming from the Jim Crow South, you know, just the interaction that different white people had with African Americans. And she was just like, we were just sitting there. It sounded like it was maybe some type of communal seating type situation. I don't know, but she said there was biscuits and they all started sharing them. And it was just something that was the only, she had never had an experience like that, um, you know, with white folks. (laughs) So uh, so she just, you know, that was just, it was a story she told often, very short one, but it was kind of like, you know, the first meal I ever had was a basket of biscuits, you know, sat down with some white folks and they didn't turn their nose up, you know, so. You know, that's always kind of stuck with me in a way and not so much just biscuits, but just the overall story uh, of how that transpired and, and how much that meant to her. You know, whether it was a small amount or a large amount, she remembered it years and years and years later. So and what resonated with you about that or what resonates now as you're an adult? <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think for her, I, I think what sits with me is just, just the fact of how uncommon that experience it was for her. Um, at that time, uh, she would probably would have been, you know, my daughter's age, week 21 in November. So just having that experience, well, no, she was older than that. But anyway, for having that experience and then just for it to sit with you that long, like it, it obviously affected her to a point to where she just remembered it. You know, that had to be 50 years later when I came around. So. I mean, my timelines are all off, but how many are years Nobody's judging. Yeah. I don't know the time span, but obviously it was years, decades later. And just that, just she remembered that and that being the first time you'd ever broken bread with someone outside of your race, it showed sort of the oppression of how it was in the South. But I think what sticks out to me the most for that was she got that degree and she came back to the South, you know, and she was always you know, talking to me when it was time for me to go off and do whatever. She's like, you know, I want you to do whatever makes you happy, you know, but when you see something that's not right, you stay there and you fix it. And that's just sort of the motto that she lived by. Whereas, you know, me given that opportunity, I probably would have stayed in New York. Not saying (laughs) they didn't have their own issues with racism, but it definitely wasn't the Jim Crow South. So I, you know, I think out of that whole story, what sticks with me is the fact that she took that, you know, experience it sat with her, but she still came back to the South where she wasn't able to sit at the table and break bread with white folks for a long time, you know, that she used to say. But I guess for me now, I think, I I, get, I, I don't want to say it connects us. I don't believe that food brings us together. I mean, I think it brings us together at the table. Yes. Um, and once you get to the table, depending on who you're sitting at that table with and their mindset, you can have the you know, opportunity to change somebody's perception of yourself, of whatever they have of you or of anyone. But it all depends on who's sitting at that table in their <laughs> mindset. So, I mean, it, the people she sat with, they probably just didn't have, you know, she didn't have a lot, a lot of story. Like, did they talk to you or did they, I don't even remember if I asked her that, you know, because I've sat at a table with 
people of white, white or right, other races, and they've not said anything to me, but we sat at the same table. So I definitely feel like I, it can bring us there, but it's a lot more work. Um, no, I mean, you have to be yeah. open-minded for sure. Um, yeah. But it does seem like your grandmother affected you because, I mean, you, aside from being a biscuit entrepreneur and a software engineer, you're also a very like established food writer. That's when I first learned about you um, was in the profile in Atlanta magazine. And, and I mean, you have been everywhere (laughs) in the New York times, you know, but I mean, I, I met you at the Southern Foodways Alliance where it does seem like we're sitting down at the table with some open-minded folks. Yeah. Um, But something we discussed in the past was that, you feel, and you alluded to it just now, that you feel like Black women have been excluded from baking, um, mm-hmm. even sourdough. Can you expand upon that and and just, I mean, again, give your opinion as to why or your perspective, rather? Yeah, well, I mean, from my own personal experiences, you know, I've been in situations where people have mentioned to me, you know, well, your biscuits are great, but I want to tell you about this white lady who makes great biscuits. I mean, I've had people tell me, um, you shouldn't write a cookbook about biscuits because it's already been written and, and all the names they gave me were of white women. Um, so my own experiences have been pretty interesting <laughs> when it comes to journeying into this space. But yeah, I mean, if you look at it, it's just we're nowhere in that narrative, but we're everywhere in it historically. You know, when I think of sourdough, I think of my great aunt Fanny, who lived to be 104 years old. But she used to keep these jars in her house and she would just open the jar and she'd tell, you know, she depended on what it smelled like. She would use that to make this bread. I've never tasted anything like it ever in my life ever again. And that was sourdough. So, you know, this, this was the 80s, 80, 82, 83. So I'm thinking... And I know other people like me who have had that same experience. But then when I Google sourdough, for example, I don't I mean, I do now because I see Brian from the, the sour, he wrote a cookbook on sourdough, which is phenomenal. But we're out there. Um, and I just think, I mean, I think that's another thing that really pushes me towards just going more towards bread and biscuits, not just through my love of eating them. <laughs> um, but I, I feel like, you know, we, we, we know these things too. We know the science behind bread baking. I mean, a lot of it, and, and a lot of it is done without the, 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 you know, the opportunities to obtain certain level of ingredients that I see some people using in their biscuit, you know, recipes. You know, I just, you know, look at something like pastry flour, which is beautiful to make biscuits with. And I think about my grandma looking at a box of pastry flour, like, what are you going to do with that? You know, and just thinking like what what we have to make certain things out of, I saw as my experiences growing up and just as I became older, I sort of adapted those same processes. I don't see any of my experiences reflective when it comes to a lot of food media stories, but mainly when centered around baking. And I don't mean cakes and pies, you know, we're, we're I mean, we're often excluded from pies, too, unless it's sweet potato. But, you know, we, we, we are a lot more than just cakes. I'll say that. And pies. It seems so strange to me that there aren't more black cooks in the dialogue about restaurants. I mean, we definitely have some, you know, Brian and Furman and, you know, Todd Richards and, and, and you know, quite a few others. But it doesn't seem like they get lifted up enough. Like even with this podcast, I'm like, I don't want to just have like white male mm-hmm. chefs on mm-hmm. here. You know, like I want to tell more varied stories. But why do you think that in Atlanta and really in the South that black chefs don't get their due? Well, I think, you know, even in a predominantly black area, it's all still centered around who has the power in that area. And a lot of times in predominantly black areas, we still don't have the power of that area. I mean, look at Atlanta. It's, look at how heavily gentrified it has been. I mean, you go to some of these neighborhoods, I won't call the neighborhoods out. It's just like, you know, touting these new age, you know, this is a great neighborhood to move into. And it's like, yeah, it was black, uh, but you know, black is <laughs> not black anymore. Uh, and then you go and there, there's no black owned businesses in a historically black area or what used to be that. So I think a lot of times, I mean, yeah, city can be predominantly black or area, but it's all about your proximity to power and who gets to tell those stories. I think um, 
you know, when it comes to restaurants here, yeah, I mean, but who controls the narrative around who gets to write up about what restaurant, who controls the access to different spaces, you know, in the area so that we're in the neighborhoods that are hip, that the food writers and media go to to find the new restaurants. If you look at those people, they're all predominantly white. Uh, and that's that's your access to power and resource. And if we don't have, you know, if we're not sitting in, in, in that line or sitting at that table, then no, you're never going to hear about us because we're not going to get that same level of, of exposure because we don't get to write the story. We don't get to tell it. I think that kind of explains that. I mean, but yeah, I mean, it's always shocking to read about Atlanta restaurants. I mean, not just Atlanta, it's a lot of places, but I mean, yeah, when you think about Atlanta. That's a lot of <laughs> yeah, Southern towns. I mean, yeah, it's Southern, uh, up North, everywhere. And I just, it's unfortunate. I mean, I, I do like to see a lot of more barbecue people. I think I see, you see Rodney Scott and Brian and, um, before mm -hmm. a long time, you know, it still was never centered around the black folks that were cooking barbecue. And that was, I had, I mean, Wilbur Shirley of Goldsboro, North Carolina was the only white man I've seen cook barbecue, uh, you know, and, you know, until I kind of ventured out into, you know, an adult atmosphere. Every, every barbecue place we went to was black owned. But, you know, it wasn't until recently that you really saw people deep diving into the stories of, you know, the pit masters, you know. So. Right, but, but I do think that it's weird that white barbecue chefs get more because it's just growing up in the South, it's like any corner, you know, like it's going to mm -hmm. be a black guy with the smoker at the gas station. Like you stop there. It's 100%. like a rule. Like you, you that is 100%. good food. If you see that, you stop. Or 100%. if you see a taqueria inside of a gas station and Tucker, yeah. you also go there, run by two Oaxacan ladies. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> I sent my parents yesterday and they oh, were like, okay. going crazy. They were like having like gorditas de chicharron and they were like, oh, oh my God. But yeah. I mean, so, so like as a food writer myself and podcast host now, like what can I do to help further that conversation and give black chefs their due? What can diners do because i feel like there's so much good food by black chefs in the south i mean that really make beautiful food like you know mashima bailey and you know and um, this yeah, wonderful cook that i that i i went i can't remember the name now it was something in Asheville, and it was just really amazing food nominated for a beard last year i'll remember later mm -hmm. but what can we do to further the conversation yeah, I mean, I think you're doing it. I mean, you're opening up your platform that you have and, and adding the exposure um, to people who don't, uh, you know, always get that. I, I do like what you said, though, too, about interviewing black chefs that cook just outside of the realm of soul food. And I still want to hear about barbecue, though. I don't I feel like yeah, totally. we, we said that I want that to be equal. And that's not quite equal yet. Um, but uh when it comes to different types of, I almost said his name, but he kind of got into it. <laughs> yeah, like, so I'm not going to say his name. Um, even though he's a phenomenal chef, I'm not going to say his name, but people who uh, cook outside of the realm of soul food, you know, oh, and, and, know you're talking. <laughs> I almost said it. I almost said it. <laughs> but, um, but no, that's the same with like, I mean, that's something that I've always lamented as a food writer that like really great Sichuan restaurants, you know, aren't given the, the same equal consideration as like some modern American restaurant in the middle of, you know, Midtown run mm -hmm. by a white chef. Like, I feel like the, like as critics, like the star system should be the same, but you know, then it goes to experience. I also think coming to the diners part, I want to say um, things that I've experienced is it's not always written about, but you notice when it comes to pricing your food as a black chef or a business owner, black business owner, this we'll, we'll talk in relation to food, but this expands across all genres. I think if we were to charge a certain amount for a dish that we have versus a white chef charging the same amount in their restaurant, Ours would be considered overpriced. Um, so I do think asking yourself what makes a, a, you know, a, a black chef's food less valuable uh, than that of the same food prepared by a white chef. And I have run into that 
you know, numerous times with just my biscuits and being compared to or my pricing, which is lower than some other white biscuit makers who have similar businesses is just, you know, why I wouldn't pay that much normally, but you pay it to a white chef. So I do think some cases and, and it, even people who don't necessarily realize that's what they're saying um, and it might not. I hate to say it might not come from a bad place, but it is a bad place to be in mindfully. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but but yeah, I think I see that a lot. And I, I think all black chefs and business owners, like I said, in, in all spectrums of business, see that. And, you know, just sort of addressing, you know, what what is it about our food or our clothing lines or our, that make you say, well, I'm not going to spend that much money, but I'm going to go out and spend $200 at this restaurant is making the same thing. Um, I mean, it's like, it's not the same thing, but I do remember when like this fancy Mexican restaurant opened in Atlanta and from New York and I'm going to not say names to you, but, um, (laughs) but they're never as good as the ones that are the hole in the walls. No, they're not. But everyone was aghast at spending expense like like an ups the concept of an upscale mexican restaurant because mm-hmm. you know everyone thinks that jalisco is the only thing of value and that tacos should be cheap you know but then mm-hmm. you see ford fry comes in and listen like i i think they make really he makes really good chilaquiles at brunch i got you know and most of his chefs <laughs> are probably latino anyway but you know they come in and people don't bat an eye at spending 30 dollars for a brunch dish because some fancy design company yeah. you know spent hundreds of millions on the build out so it's yeah. just very interesting to see that the environment seems to really push that with mexican food you're listening to the food that binds with jennifer zeman on the eat drink dine podcast network and you're listening to my interview with erica council but just speaking of the industry one of the things i keep saying in these episodes of my podcast of the past year has been kind of like a control alt delete for the industry and like for so many industries. Um, And right now the restaurant industry is kind of finding its footing and reopening. It seems like it's impossible for anyone to find labor right now. And I think that part of that, you know, I think it's um, many things, but one of it, one of the real reasons is that the industry just is not a healthy place with a livable wage. You have a lot of friends in the industry. What are your thoughts on that? Like on where we're going and, and, and what needed to change that that is going to have to after the pandemic? Yeah, well, as far as toxic behavior in the workplace, I think that, of course, that has draw, you know, made a lot of people turn away from this industry. You know, my experience is I have seen that type, that type of behavior from certain people in this industry, just as a, an observer who still will, will be flourishing. Uh, <laughs> you know, they might be better at hiding it, but I don't see them. You know, I mean, they just they have all the access to the I mean, even right here in Atlanta, you know, it's all been centered around white men, but no one has talked about how toxic some white women can be. Um, And I've been on the receiving end of some of that. And I have some friends who are on the receiving end of some people, I won't say one, uh, who has access to a lot of things here in Atlanta. And, you know, they can continue to be toxic and create a toxic environment because, you know, they they get the sort of the first pass. Let me let me be quiet before I actually say what it is. But I think that it's, it's being addressed the way it should be. Where it goes from there, I'll be interesting to see. It'll be interesting to see because I don't know. I don't. I don't really see it changing. I, I think that just you know, they they you know we we've created. I don't want to say we because I have never. I wish I'm a, I almost cursed. Somebody would try me at any point in time. We you can't gonna curse be, on this. We're gonna be yeah. I mean we're gonna be out here this motherfucker fighting because I don't even. <laughs> I mean, some of the ways I've seen people talking to people and I just sort of look at them like, oh, honey, no, like this is not what we're about to do. And I don't know if that's a, sort of a cultural thing, but I mean, you have seen some black chefs sort of getting, you know, their reckoning too with being, you know, a certain way. And I have not had issues like that. I mean, so I, I can't speak from personal experience. You know, the, the issues I've kind of had have all been sort of doubting me or, you know, treating me a certain way because they felt like I wasn't up to par with whoever they felt was up to par with whatever they were doing, especially when it comes to baking. 
which is wrong too, but it hasn't been, you know, these experiences women and, and men or people have talked about. Um, so I, I don't, you know, I'm not really a good voice for that, but I think that I honestly don't see it changing unless the people who, again, are so close to power and have access and resource and that's taken away and it's distributed evenly. Invest in black women is be the first thing I would say, but you hardly ever see that. I mean, you see, I think that was one thing that sort of pissed me off when I saw during the pandemic, the sort of push to save the restaurants. And it was like one black restaurant, one black restaurateur in the whole sort of, you know, campaign. You know, and it, it's kind of like, you know, there's there's a lot of sort of one off restaurants that you will never hear about who didn't get any loans. They didn't get anything and won't get, act, you know, won't get included in these campaigns, you know, raise funds. And, you know, I just sort of look at it like, OK, well, I mean, what, what is the plan for them? You know, I mean, we kind of I mean, they're lo- they were losing their restaurants to start with because they weren't being supported because of gentrification and and that was fine. Are we going to go back to that? And now that the people who needed money during the pandemic have their money and, you know, I mean, what, what, how are they going to continue to support the people who will still struggle even when everything goes back to normal as they say? Yes. Um, I mean, you think that we're just going back to normal like that? I mean, yeah, I don't think, I mean, I don't want to sound like Debbie Downer, but I don't think, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I'm, I hope it will change. I hope that it will be a better environment for people. I think, you know, financially, you know, people have to sort of figure out how they can pay livable wages and charge the right amount for their, you know, whether it's food, whatever, um, you know, T-shirts, whatever you're selling. The people in your employee to be able to get the livable wage, you know, you have to sell your stuff at a certain price point. I mean, this is sort of finance, right? So, I mean, you're going to have to sort of figure out how to mold your business in so everything checks and balances how it should so that you can pay people a livable wage and you can, you know, support an environment, not just, you know, paying livable wages, but also making it so that people want to work for you. Uh, you know, don't be an asshole, you know, like, <laughs> oh, you're here. I can pay you this and give right. you benefits. But that doesn't mean nothing if you're an asshole every day. So I think, you know, I think a lot of these restaurants who can't find people think, you know, a lot of that might be not just a livable wage. It might just be the people who work there. And it's not always the owner or the head chef. Sometimes it's the people who work in the front of the house or, you know, you kind of got to look at everybody who works for you and, you know, don't remove yourself from your business either. I think some sometimes I mean, you read these stories, sometimes it's kind of like, OK, well, the, it was the it was the line cooks and the executive chefs with you know, where is the person who owned this business and why were they not paying attention to what was happening within their business? You know, and then when they come back around and say, oh, well, I didn't know this was going on. I wanted to know they still need to be held accountable because this is your business, you know, so you can't remove yourself from it. I think there's going to be some cases where people need to sort of, you know, lean back into their businesses to just clean it up, you know, starting with themselves, you know get back behind that griddle and <laughs> look at what people are doing. That's what's like so stressful though. Like I talk about this, like Christian Lauterbach and I talked about like Gita, she was like, I'm not a gatekeeper, you know, because like, how do you keep tabs on like whether or not this restaurant has a racist owner? Like, you know, one such buckhead place that was, clo- you know, called out, yeah. you know, last year, how do you keep like, or that, there's not some other chef who's known for creating like a huge toxic culture. I think for me, that's something that stresses me out so much because I feel like there's an expectation that you're curating people's morality and like the industry as a whole is problematic. Well, you get, well, for the racism, you get more people on your staff who are black, who can recognize it. I think, you know, a lot of these, well, they have to think that it's a problem for them to fix it. And I'm not sure that the owners, Well, I'm saying that if, they're white, a white person. I mean, the gatekeepers are white. I mean, we'll just go ahead and put that out there. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take, I mean, they're not going to be able to recognize if a person is, we'll just use race from racism because that's mm-hmm. what I'm familiar with. I mean, I mean, they're not going to be able to say, okay, yeah, this guy, their food is great, but he's racist. I mean, they're not going to be able to point that out. So, I mean, I think until there's some changes, you know, within everything, you know, you're not going to have anybody on your team necessarily to say, oh, this guy, man, he's a racist asshole. Like, I'll use an example. Ali and Irene. Ali Irene. It's, it was a restaurant in Birmingham, I think. 
uh, we went there once. Uh, we were in there. We were in Birmingham for an SFA event, and I love SFA. I think they do a great job. I'll give my spiel about SFA. I think they do a great job of telling our stories and considering black food ways. And a lot of the restaurants and things that I know about have only been written about through SFA. And mm-hmm. I think in order to sort of change the dynamic of Southern foodways and who gets to tell the stories, some other people need to start telling those stories or it'll just continue to live with SFA because they're doing the work to make sure, you know, the little places like Archibalds and all the things that you would never hear about are getting written about. So they do a great SFA. job. Yeah. Give them so, your money. Yeah. So, <laughs> Go to the symposium. Right. Right. When they start again. So anyway, I think they're having we, one. Yeah. In October. Yeah, in October. Yeah. Yeah. So we went to Ali and Irene um, mm-hmm. and it was the, the food was outstanding, um, you know, and, and I think, you know, people had told us the food was great. You know, some one other person said the owner, he's kind of quirky is what they said. And we so anyway, it ends and Andy, Andy Lee, he was there. So he remembers this Claire's day <laughs> um, <laughs> and the owner of the restaurant comes out and he just kills the whole experience. So I turning to me and saying, I want you to meet the black woman who cooks all the food in my restaurant. And it was just like, you know, everyone around the table just like, oh, gas. But to oh me, it God. was just it was just sort of like, yeah, well, I mean, it was very good. So I figured there was somebody back there like me who cooked the food. But, you know, that was sort of an experience for the people I was with because they were kind of like, I cannot believe he said that to you. So the whole meal was outstanding. The food was terrific. And I'm sure they had great write ups in there, you know, about their place. But the owner, I mean, he said some other things, too, is an asshole. And that that whole line of thinking, oh, let me go out here and tell the only black person sitting at this table about the black person that cooks all the food. And, you know, I walked back there just to meet her because it was, you know, I wanted to tell her her Give food. Give her her due. Yeah. yeah. And she kind of looks at me and I and I said he wanted to tell me about the black person that cooks all the food. And she's like, yeah, that sounds like his ass. Well, it's kind of like, you know. I mean, I don't know if she was unhappy working there, but I will never forget that experience. But I've had tons of experiences like that. But from, for the most part, the people who were with me, they always mentioned that to me and just how uncomfortable it made them. But I just think, you know, if it would have been a group of all white folks, you know, food critics enjoying the food or whatever, he would not have said that to. He could have gotten some great write up in the New York Times or something like that. Oh, this is guy, the chef, he's quirky. But that's not what it is. It's not quirky. So I think that it's going to take sort of a whole sort of to fix this industry. It's going to take a change in a lot of things that I, you know, I just don't know how that will come to be. I mean, I I, want to see it. You were able to like pivot and and make your business a reality during the pandemic. Has anything changed for you as a business owner in the past year? Like in I mean, terms other of- than expanding into delivery, right. I mean, but you know, it was pretty much a business to start with, but I think pivoting into delivery sort of changed a lot of things, which, you know, opened me up to shipping, which I would have never considered, but you know, like my aunt sells her cake mix in Whole Foods all throughout the Southeast. So I guess, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit is there. I think, you know, when you think about pivoting and, 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 and making a way out of no way, that's the African-American ethos. So, I mean, I, I looked at it at things that way. I look at what the people before me who have made this path for me were able to do with, you know, when there was no pandemic, but we still didn't have the stuff, <laughs> the access and resources, and we still don't. Um, coming out of this pandemic, I think the marginalized will continue to be marginalized. We'll still will continue to get the, the short end of the stick. Um, you know, while those who have always flourished will continue to flourish, I think. And, and that's what needs to change. You know, this black, white, Mexican, black, Asian, Mexican, not white. <laughs> but I'm just saying those who have always had access to privilege and resources will just continue to have it. So, yeah, I mean, I think for me, business wise, business wise, I think it has shown me um, the gatekeepers in Atlanta uh, a little bit more than I knew. <laughs> I knew of some. Um, but business-wise, I think as I've expanded, I've, 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 and and not, neg- this is not a knock at them. Um, I want to say that, but I, I, I have been introduced to a lot of the people who I don't think 
you know, everyone would have the ability to be introduced to uh, just because of who kind of holds the key to getting in front of those people, you know, but once you meet them, they're great. But I kind of, I kind of, I think that's what I've seen through this pandemic. And I guess business wise, business wise for me, that's what I have been introduced to. I wouldn't want to say introduced because I knew somewhat about it, but just I've seen kind of how it works here. Yeah, it was it wasn't until we spoke last year that even I understood and you're like, yeah, I mean, even like on a real estate development level, like I like I mentioned earlier, and it really makes sense to me. Like if people are not mentioning your name in the rooms with those people or you're not having access to those people, then how are you gonna get those deals? They're just gonna go they're gonna go to all the the low hanging fruit. You know, like, you know, oh, yeah, just he'll do another place, you know, yes. just give it to this white chef. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, white definitely, chef. <laughs> Still, that's definitely how it works. And I think, you know, to answer your question, I think that's that's what I've, I have seen that I had not really had much exposure to a real estate, of course. I mean, mm-hmm. as a homeowner, several times over like that side of it, you know, I've I've seen that real estate as an African-American, but the commercial real estate um, business with finding property or whatever, if you want to open a place and just all, all kinds of things. And just that whole process, I had not had much exposure to on, on being the business owner side. Um, so it's an interesting circle. I'll say that. <laughs> um, business, what's next for your business? Like, you know, what's the next evolution? You're always doing something. I know. So I am the next, the next step is definitely getting into a permanent location because awesome. the prep co-working space is bleeding me dry. Uh, and then you're still limited into what you can do. So it's kind of like, man, if, if, if I was on a level financially that I wanted to be, I'd probably open me a co-working kitchen because my Mm. God, that is a business that they have to be making. Oh my gosh. With ghost kitchens right now too, like all the concepts, if you look on any of the delivery services. Yeah. It's not even that. It's just like, even without the ghost kitchen space, if you just want to sell and market your stuff legally, I'll say that. Yes. 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 Food safety and serve safe. Yeah, I mean, some people have cottage licenses, but to ship it outside of the state of Georgia, you have to be in a certain type of space, you know. And so, yeah, I mean, there are only a couple of places that do that. So, yeah, so the next step for Bomb Biscuit Biscuit Co. is uh, brick and mortar, permanent brick and mortar. Uh, So we're kind of in the process of looking at a bunch of different spaces. Um, Before the pandemic, we were looking at building a space. I got all that exposure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think, I Always think, learning. Oh, yeah. I think yeah. that, um, you know, we, we're just going to go the ride of a turnkey now. But I think that that was a great experience, you know. So, so yeah, that's the next step. So is this going to be just a bakery or will you be doing like ready to eat stuff like sandwiches as well? Yeah, no, we're going to do all the bakery stuff, but it's going to be breakfast, brunch. Um, all the pop-up items all the time. Yeah. So it'll be so like table service and the whole, the whole, not night. table is counter yeah. service. And counter service. service. <laughs> I was going to say, don't counter. kill yourself. No, no. you gotta come pick this up. So it's, it's just a, <laughs> no, um, it's just an expansion of the pop-ups and the delivery and, and a location where people can come and pick it up versus I mean, I've got great people on the team, great delivery driver, great chef. Shout out to Chef Mary. Um, he's been with me for over a year now. Um, so, yeah, I think I think, you know, that'll be the next step for us. And are your kids? I know I asked you last time if they were helping. Are they helping <laughs> now? <laughs> well, my my daughter will be 21 in November. She does a lot of the social media pieces for me, the website. Which looks but, great. Yeah, I mean, the social media is definitely her because I, my my social media account was hacked and I had to start That's over right. again. I remember that. Yeah, and I was like, you know what? Just forget this. I'm not gonna <laughs> do it anymore. So I mean, I have my own personal uh, Instagram and Twitter, of course, but all of Bomb Biscuits is is mainly my daughter. We had a she had a friend who was interning with us. It wasn't interning because she got paid, but then she. <laughs> She, she was doing a lot of little graphic things, which was cute. So they kind of, 
alternate between the two of them. So be nice if you're messaging on <laughs> Instagram because that's my kid and uh, don't be a jerk. Um, but no, we, we've, we've got all great comment. I mean, we haven't had any issues like that. So yeah, I think my daughter, my son is just, you know, he's nine. So he's not gonna, <laughs> <laughs> he'll be 10 next month. He's not going to do anything. My daughter uh, would want to add the stickers and they'd be like all jacked up. I'm sure she's also yeah, nine. No, so. Char- yeah, no, Charlie's not doing any of that. He goes missing. Like, you know, things like taking out, like, take this trash. You know, we're trying to get, you know, he takes the trash out at home and stuff like that. But he, he's seen the amount of trash that we would have at these pop-ups. And I remember once he was saying, God, I hope I never have to take trash out here. <laughs> so, yeah, so he, um, he'll be somewhere sitting there playing video games. He's not, he's not into it. So, Is there anything that you would like to plug? For, you know, listeners, like, do you want to like direct them to your website? Is there any like upcoming like special items they should look for? Yeah. uh, So yeah, bombbiscuitatl.com is the website. You can find us. We're on Instagram. Um, I think we're we're on Facebook, Bomb Biscuit Atlanta. Yeah. So we deliver throughout the week, but our general drop, biscuit drop, as we call it, is Fridays. Um, sometimes we do it on Saturdays and, and it shifts mainly due to staff, I think, which is a great example. I mean, we, we used to do Wednesday, Thursday, Friday delivery. Um, mm-hmm. and we kind of just sort of looked to see when people were getting most of their items delivered. And Friday just really was the day one week we had 150 deliveries in one day. Uh, I mean, that, I know that, that was between Thursday and Friday. It was two days. And it, it was a lot. Um, so we kind of have, we, we limit, we have to limit, um, but it's still about 60 to 70 deliveries. Yeah. Yeah. So we kind of do that. And then the Friday is just mainly because that's when we can beef up the staff the most if we have a lot of deliveries, but we do deliver on other days of the week. So if there are if you want to order something and you want it delivered on a Saturday, we don't do Sundays, but it says on the website, you can send us an email and we will deliver it. It's just kind of how we have to work um, right now. But I think that's... But catering is back on. Yeah, catering is... We can get biscuit platters for like, yeah. you know, bridal showers and stuff. Right, we are back to catering. We have a catering menu. So, but it's all like on the Bomb Biscuits website, Bomb Biscuit website. It's kind of like, it's a link to catering and you sort of fill out a form and then we send you a list, uh, a menu list. There might be a hyperlink on there now, but that changes based on what we're getting. I mean, we always have the fried chicken biscuits and country ham, but we do a lot of seasonal fruit. The jams are always different. Yeah. Um, But yeah, we do do really cook with the seasons. I mean, you are very much a Southern chef in that regard. So listeners look out for great things when it's strawberry season, when it's peach season. Yeah. I I like that. Yeah. We're doing some blueberry lemon um, preserves this week but 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 yeah i think too because i kind of I mean my grandma and all my ancestors are like yelling at me if i'm i mean they're very firm on you can't cook this like even to the point where you can't eat potato salad in the winter so it's like my husband he's from up north and he he loves potato salad he loves potato salad and he's like i want potato salad but my my grandma my great aunts all them they only cook potato salad in the summer I don't know because it's potato season, yeah, right? Well, like that's it's cold, and I'm supposed to eat cold thing. It's just, just so, just <laughs> bizarre things like that are things I have been grown up with my whole life. Uh, so it's just like you know, if I give you some peach preserves in January. <laughs> what if you put them up though i'm I, about to put up all these pearson peaches that i have that are soft oh right now yeah yeah i think yeah so yeah we try to stick especially when it comes to the jams we try to stick to this is what we get um seasonally so yeah so, and when are you thinking for the business 2022 2023 um well i like for the bricks and mortar yeah i mean 2022 really soon honestly um it just depends on what kind of space we can find and uh, mm-hmm. what would go into what, what amount of work will have to be done to it. Um, but yeah, I mean, 2022, honestly, is what, if not before, um, we're looking to have a permanent location. 
I can't wait. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate all your support. Like I love your biscuits. I had them first. I mean, for the first time I was at a pop-up at bees, you know, but then I, I met you before that at Southern Foodways and, yeah. I knew, and like everyone is obsessed with you there too. They oh. all just love what you do. And I was like, she's really important. I really want to meet her. She's yeah. Like, I think she's really that, cool. yeah, I've always heard great things about Southern Foodway Alliance. I mean, you know, they featured my grandma did years ago. You know, I just think it's a great organization. I love John T and he's been super supportive of me even before I was cool. So, you know, I remember he had me, this was New Orleans. He's like, you're going to, you're going to introduce these people. And I was like, what? <laughs> I just felt, like, I, I, I can't, I was just terrified. And he's like, oh, you'll be fine. Um, you know, and it's just, I just appreciate people who, even when you don't have any type of, I mean, yeah, I'm, part of a council, the council family, but you know, just, just all those who have sort of supported me along the way without even knowing, I mean, the Kimball house guys, uh, Andy, uh, just, you know, there's a Todd, Todd, shout out to, shout out to Todd Richards, chef. I appreciate <laughs> all your support. Um, Brian Furman, much love to him. Just, just everybody, the Garner girls, like I could keep going on and on. Uh, <laughs> But, but yeah, my agent, Lisa Eckes, Virginia Willis. I mean, just, just there's so many people who I think were supportive of me before even, you know, knowing if I made anything good, you know, I mean, they could have, <laughs> you meet people all the time and say, oh, these people are amazing. You know, they introduce you that way, you know, and it's kind of like, they turn out to not be all that. Great. <laughs> I mean, it happens. I mean, I could have been that person. I mean, Nicole Taylor is another one, Bryant Terry. It's just been so many people, N Nicole, really. I mean, she's just been such a great cheerleader. Just we, we, She had us over her house for Juneteenth. Thank you so much for your time. I know it's valuable and I really appreciate having you on. Well, thanks for having me. Listen to me ramble on. I mean, please, all <laughs> I do is ramble. <laughs> all right, I'll talk to you soon, Erica. All right, bye. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. That's this week's episode. Thank you for listening and thank you to Erica for joining me. You can learn more about her company and biscuits at bombbiscuitatl.com. If you want to keep up with me on social, you can find me as Jennifer Zeman or The Food That Binds on Instagram and Twitter. Please don't forget to rate and review because it helps other people find me. Next Wednesday, I'm joined by Justin and Jonathan Fox, the twin brother duo behind the wildly popular Atlanta barbecue restaurant Fox Brothers Barbecue. We discuss their childhood, being in business with family, and what's next for their restaurant empire. Again, we're back on Wednesday. Until then, I'm Jennifer Zeman, and you've been listening to The Food That Binds on the Eat, Drink, Dine podcast network.